You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On January 29th, the eve of President Trump's first State of the Union address, the Washington Post brought together influential lawmakers, political operatives, and plugged-in analysts to preview the president's speech and look ahead to the coming legislative year. In this segment, Washington Post national political correspondent Karen Tumulty talks with House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi about current negotiations between Congress and the White House over the DACA program. They also discuss the Democratic Party's chances of regaining congressional majorities in November, the ongoing Russia probe, and much, much more. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us today. We are so thrilled to have here as our guest House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, who is also the one and only woman ever to have served as the Speaker of the House, which makes her quite literally the most powerful woman in American history <laughs> and in politics, anyway. And she'd like that job back again this year. So um, before we get started, I, I want to remind you guys, uh, our audience in the room, and those of you who are watching online, that if you have any questions or comments, the hashtag is postlive, and I'm going to try to get a few into the interview. But uh, first of all, I would like to talk to you about our topic today, which is the State of the Union Address. We know the president is going to be talking a lot about immigration. He put out a framework of a deal that mm -hmm. he'd like to see last Friday. It involves uh, expanding the number of dreamers who would get protection. It also includes some money for his wall and some pretty, uh, pretty radical restrictions on legal immigration. So he's, he's got sweeteners in there for the left. He's got sweeteners for the right. Is there a deal to be had, and especially a deal to be had in time to protect these seven to 800,000 uh, young immigrants who are, are looking at essentially you know, a pretty steep deadline in yes. February? Well, of course, there has to be a deal to be had, an agreement to be reached. One of the Republican members who has a bill, Mr. Hurd, described it this morning, let's discreetly deal with the dreamers and some security. And then if we want to go to the other subject of a fuller comprehensive immigration reform and all that that entails, that's a, a bigger subject that takes more time. But for right now, uh, if you really do care about the dreamers, uh, yeah, there is a, uh, an agreement to be reached. And it. it it has been presented, and it seems like the president is right there, and then, then he's not. And it's really discouraging, because what he has put forth in this framework is a really not in keeping with what immigration has meant to America. We are a country of immigrants, unless we were blessed to be born as Native Americans, and God bless us, our country, for their contribution to our success. But the immigration has been the constant reinvigoration of America. Every immigrant who comes here with hopes and aspirations to make a future better for their children and their families ascribe to our, what our founders had in mind, that every generation would take advantage, would, would take the opportunity to make the future better for their families and therefore for our country. 
So when they come with that hope, determination, courage, and optimism to make the future better, this immigration makes America more American. We, and that's not what happens in the president's bill. But you mentioned that there will be... A suggestion. You, that Democrats are open to resources for border security. Yes. Does that mean that Democrats have come around to the idea that the president can get some money for his wall? Well, in other words, we're talking about border security, and what is that? I mean, in other words, uh, we all have a responsibility, and we recognize it to protect our borders. Every country must do that, and that means north and south in our case, and uh, others coming in other ways, but especially the two uh, physical borders. And the uh, and so we had been receptive to saying what it is. What is it that the border patrol has? Is there? Uh, we, I don't want to say wish list, but what they're suggesting that, to meet their needs. And that actually is what we have in some of our legislation. And that is <coughs> commensurate, God bless you, and appropriate to, uh, to, um, uh, to what the number of people we're trying to protect. Another bill, when, when there was a, a bipartisan bill in the Senate that was agreed to, uh, it had more money for border, but it also uh, gave a pass to citizenship for 11 million people in our so, country. This is a, a much smaller number, the, the uh, commensurate border protection in keeping with what the Border Patrol has said they need. So wall money uh, is not a deal breaker for you? Well, when you say wall money, what do you mean? Do you mean well, we're, levees? We're, do you mean fences? Do you mean mowing the lawn, where the, the grass, where, the, where a lot of people have kind of uh, come through unsuspected? There are many things about border protection, and if there's some physical structure, so be it, but a 2,000-mile wall that costs $25 billion, which, by the way, the Mexicans are not paying for, please. And by the way, if you know anything about the region, it's a community with a border going through it. Families go back and forth, children go to school, people buy their groceries, they visit family and friends. Uh, it is, uh, to put a wall there is to, uh, in my view, ineffective, too expensive, almost immoral. And immoral. One, one area that, um, that a lot of people think there is potential for bipartisan agreement is on infrastructure. Yeah. The president has talked about sums of money. He really hasn't put a lot of details into what he would like to see. What are you going to be listening for tomorrow night on that? Well, the president has always talked about infrastructure, but it's also, just as with immigration, been a moving uh, kind of target. Uh, we had thought that when he talked about infrastructure in the first meeting we had among, in a bipartisan way with the president of the United States a few days after his inauguration last year was that a, a trillion dollars to be invested into infrastructure. What they've come up with now is this mini plan, which is like $200 billion. That's over 10 years, $20 billion. I mean, it doesn't even come close to what we need. Uh, we have trillions of dollars, according to the Society of, of, um, of, of Civil Engineers, trillions of dollars of deficit. Just think of what it could mean for America if we made a real commitment. That trillion dollars uh, put forth building roads, bridges, mass transit, high-speed rail, broadband, water systems. Uh, some of our water systems are 100 years old, made of brick and wood. I mean, they really need to be replaced. It's a, a health issue almost. Uh, and so with all of that school construction, it could help 
to grow the economy all over the country, create good paying jobs. And again, the care and feeding goes with the jobs that are out there. So it would also uh, uh, stimulate the economy in many other ways. Create jobs in the building, sustain commerce in the process, improve the quality of life in terms of uh, uh, the investments in infrastructure, which take cars off the road, et cetera, done in an environmentally sound way. The president's proposal meets none of those standards. In fact, it puts some of the burden on states and cities, uh, municipalities, state and local governments, which he has just slapped in the face with the state and local tax reduction in that tax deduction. So they're saying to them, you're going to get less resources. And by the way, you're going to have to raise taxes if you think you're going to get uh, some, uh, we're going to have some collaboration. And by the way, some of the money that you've already put up for infrastructure, that's not any longer going to be counted in all of this. So it's, it's a really bad deal for state and local government. Instead of doing Build America bonds, where the states and local government take over. Uh, uh, and uh, Now, one other part of it that is a problem, and I pointed out to this to the president a year ago, is you cannot expect to put forth some mini program that is, uh, subsidizes the private sector to build the infrastructure. Now we've guaranteed their loan, and now they're going to build it, own it, and charge tolls. So the taxpayer is paying twice. So there's, you know, getting back to your question, yeah, there is a way to do this. Infrastructure has really never been uh, a, a source of partisan disagreement. We've always found our way because everybody knows that this is important uh, to our country. Again, in itself to create jobs immediately, but really to promote commerce, to improve the quality of life, to move product to and from market, especially where uh, Time is important in terms of perishability. I mean, we really need to do this, and we've always understood it, and now they're coming up with some. This is another example, whether the immigration bill and this bill as a tax bill. Let us give you this little thing while we do this other problematic stuff, but you'll be attracted to the fact that we have this little goodie in there for you, a little goodie in the tax bill while it gives a banquet to the 83% of it going to the top 1%. A little statement about infrastructure, while most of it is really, now this isn't what the role of federal government is in terms of infrastructure in our country. President Eisenhower recognized it as a national security issue, the interstate highway system, as a national security initiative connecting us. And, um, and then again on immigration, well, we're going to give them citizenship in 10, 12 years, but at the same time, we're going to upset the rest of our immigration. So it's a little teaser and a big problem in all cases. The three I's, immigration, infrastructure, oh, oh, intelligence will be the third one. In California on St. Patrick's Day, we always have the three I's, the Italians, the Irish, <laughs> and the Israelis, well, they call it, just for the sake of alliteration. Sure. And I think that we're going through that right now with infrastructure, the problem with intelligence. I don't know if you'll get to that, but, but, but this well, is actually, seriously undermining our country. I would like to ask you about that, um, <laughs> because you, between your time on the Intelligence right. Committee and your years as leader, where right. you have been read into right. every crucial right. intelligence question there is. I don't think there's anybody in Congress who has had as many years of dealing with highly sensitive intelligence issues as you have. What are 
the implications and the ramifications going forward of this fraying that we have seen between the executive you know, between the executive and the intelligence community. Well, it's not between the intelligence. The, the, uh, what is happening now is a massive politicization of intelligence, and we have to protect the intelligence community from that. What is happening right now is that uh, the chairman, uh, let, let me put this in context. Yes, I, I have served longer than anybody in history, and I don't know if anybody will ever catch up to me because I started in the early 90s as a member, then I had the ranking position. That was, I'm so proud of Adam Schiff, and isn't he doing a beautiful job in his role? <laughs> Eric Swalwell is here, another member of our committee. But, um, and I, I'm very proud of all of our members. The chair, the speaker and the leader have the privilege and the responsibility to deputize, to name who is on the Intelligence Committee. It's not a, a question of the Styrian Policy Committee making proposals to the caucus and people run and vote. It is a personal appointment. The chairman, the ranking member, speaker, leader, as well as the members of the committee. And I think we have uh, tried over the years to honor the fact that this is about our security. In the old days when I was there at first, it was mostly about force protection. It still is, how to protect our forces uh, to avoid conflict, but when we go in to make sure there. Then all kinds of uh, uh, multinational issues emerge, and of course, terrorism. But this is really seriously a serious responsibility. And the speaker has appointed somebody who is totally irresponsible, politicizing the process, and really it should not be happening. For example, right now, he's talking about releasing a document, releasing a document that is predicated on another document that was put together on the basis of total misrepresentations. It's like the wrap-up smear. Smear, let me do a terrible document. Now let me write a report on it and release it feathers to the wind that people see it. Now, as you said, I have seen most of the underlying documents of all this. I can tell you that the memo that they reference is uh, a misrepresentation. This is the Steele dossier. Well, it's not the Steele dossier. It's a, it's a, that's, well, I can't say what's in it, but, uh, you know. I can't talk about what's in it. All I'm just saying of the underlying documents that I have seen of this document that they, their staff, the Republican staff alone, and you usually do things in bipartisan way, they put together is, is false, misleading, misrepresenting, and now they're doing a memo on top of it, and so it's like the wrap-up smear. This is bad, now we're going to tell you about it, and now we're going to release it, which is highly unusual. I hope that tonight they don't vote to uh, uh, release it, but if they do, then we will have a, uh, my, uh, the ranking member has said, uh, uh, Adam Schiff, that there will be an attempt to mitigate for the damage that they're put in, doing, putting out there. We'd rather not any of it go out. But that the president has said, do you think he's read the underlying documents, or even the memo, or the memo on the memo, that they're going to put that out? I mean, really, this is about our national security. This is about protecting sources and methods. This is about the integrity of our intelligence. It should never be politicized, and that's what they're doing. And Nunez is really a stooge for the White House to do all of this. Since we're spending time together, I thought we wouldn't waste any of it with any niceties. <laughs> <laughs> 
you mentioned the vote that's coming up in the House today. There's also a vote coming up in the Senate on an abortion bill, one specifically that would outlaw abortion after 20 weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, what is Mitch McConnell trying to do? It's a procedural vote. It's not a vote on the underlying bill. What, what do you think Mitch McConnell is up to here? I think he's up to practicing medicine, which, <laughs> as far as I know, he has no credentials for. However, this is, this is, this is um, saying to doctors what they can or cannot do and what is legal if they do. This is about the health and well-being of the mother. We shouldn't be going down this path. But it's a, it's a bone that they throw to their base. And it's sad because, you know, I grant people their position on where they are on these issues. I come from an Italian-American Catholic family, a little more conservative in their views than I am on some of this. I think they're coming around, but nonetheless, the, um, the, but to go into something like this is such, again, it, if somebody is doing something wrong right now, a doctor, they go to jail. So this bill, in, in effect, really has no effect, except it's a show vote. Well, I'd like to turn to my favorite subject, and I suspect one of your favorite subjects, which is the midterms which are looking pretty good right now for Democrats. You have, it's always difficult for the White House, the first go-round in the midterms. Yeah. You've got a historically unpopular president. Yeah. And right now, the, <laughs> right now, the generic ballot of just, would you rather see a Democrat or a Republican in your seat? The Real Clear Politics average on that polling has the Democrats up by eight in the House. So that looks like you guys are in pretty good shape. So my question is, what keeps Nancy Pelosi up at night? Oh, <laughs> eating too much chocolate no. during the day. Uh, <laughs> actually, the, the tax bill is really the dark cloud uh, that hangs over the Capitol. The fact that the Republicans rushed through this tax bill, trillions of dollars of impact on our economy, with no hearings, no expert advice as to what it, the impact will be on our future. A bill that is 83% uh, uh, of it goes to the top, of the benefits go to the top 1%. They sell it as a middle class tax cut. 86 million American middle class families will be paying more in taxes as a result of this bill. A, nearly a trillion and a half uh, dollar tax break for corporate America, unpaid for and permanent, adding nearly $2 trillion to the national debt as you. Um, and when you put in uh, interest on the debt, the debt service there. And again, robbing from our children's future. And then, this is why it keeps me away, using it as an excuse to then say, well, we can't really spend too much money on the domestic budget because we have this deficit. A deficit well, they created, and by the way, which they said, oh, it's going to pay for itself with all the growth. Well, if it is, then we have money for the, for the domestic budget. If it isn't, you shouldn't have done it in the first place. So that is coloring our negotiations on the, um, uh, on the caps. Well, and but, and for, but for that, we could, I thought we were close to a solution. The tax bill has put a little fear of the Lord into some members because they know that if we have a tax agree, uh, cap agreement, it will increase the deficit. Well, it, it's the gotten, debt, the national debt. It's right. gotten to be pretty predictable that in these midterm election seasons, you're going to see a lot of yourself on television in yeah. Republican campaign ads. Yeah. We've already seen one yeah. in uh, Pennsylvania quite recently. Um, and one of the arguments that they are making in the ads is taking issue with your use of the word crumbs to describe yeah. the, say, average $1,000 that right. 
people are gonna, the average household gets in their pocket from this bill. I noticed that you just used the word goodies rather than crumbs. Was well, crumbs a crumb a goodies? Good? Either one. Either uh, one, because it's not a question of $1,000. It's a question of the billions of dollars the banquet that they have put for the top 1%. Now, I don't begrudge anybody their success, their wealth, their achievement. God bless you for that. But to, I saw a cartoon. The cartoonists always sort of have it. It's the middle class, like a little mouse, a piece of cheese on the mouse trap, and then the fat cat's just waiting for that middle class person to take that. This is unconscionable that they would have 83% of the benefits going to the top 1%. So that's my point, is it's not what it is, it's what it isn't. And what it is for the, the banquet of, of money uh, at the top end, extraction of money, uh, but trying to sell it as something that you should be just so glad to get. No, our people deserve better. And if we could have had a bipartisan discussion on tax, yes, you want to lower the corporate rate, what makes sense? So, and, and, but they didn't want to engage in that because they were afraid of it, because it would give more benefits to many more people, and that was not their goal. Their goal was trickle-down economics. If it trickles down, that would be good. If it creates jobs, that would be good. If it doesn't, so be it. That's the free market. That's what they tell us. Well, so what's going to be critical for you guys in this election okay. um, are having the right kind of candidates in the right yeah. kind of districts. Right. And you've got, what is it, 23 districts out there where you have a Republican incumbent member of Congress in a district that Hillary Clinton right. won in, in the presidential. Yes, you want to talk politics. You want to talk politics? Yeah. OK. <laughs> well, first, let me get to your first point. Yes, they always like to. Um, I'm so proud to come from San Francisco, and I'm so <laughs> proud of our San Francisco values. But that seems to be what they like to do, a cable car, LGBT, all of that. <laughs> and that's you know, how they, they put this all forth. Uh, and and I, I saw Come From Away, the play, and in it they sing, Make Me a uh, Channel of Thy Peace. Do you know that song? Make Me Thy Mother's Darkness, uh -huh. Light, Hatred, Love, Despair, Hope. And that's the anthem of our city of San Francisco. It's the song of St. Francis, our patron saint. And yet they want to characterize my city in a certain way and identify a candidate with me and that. And you know, we're really proud of who we are. Now, some of these candidates I've never met. It's really important for these candidates to come from their communities, as this candidate uh, uh, did in, in Pennsylvania that you referenced. But it is um, important because your title and your job description are the same, representative. You're not representing my district, and I'm not representing yours. Job description, representative. Title, representative. So your point, Karen, was exactly right. There has to be a connection between the candidates and the districts, and the districts make those decisions. Uh, the um, history is on our side in terms of the of, of if the president's numbers go below 50, it's a bad year. The next year will be bad. I always say. Tell me where the president is the November before the election, and I'll tell you if the door is open for us. If the president's under 50 of the opposing, of the, of, well, let's say the Republicans, well, when Clinton was president, his numbers went down, they won. Oh, Bush, his numbers went down, we won. Obama, his numbers went down, they won. It's not dispositive of the election. There are many other things going on, uh, and you have to be strategic, 
cold-blooded in terms of your decisions as to where you allocate your resources. Uh, but you never over underestimate your opponent, never. But you don't overestimate them either. And right now, uh, I have never seen in all my years in, in politics more enthusiasm at the grassroots level wanting to take responsibility, to run for office, to support friends. That taking responsibility gives us opportunity. Uh, so again, it's what, nine and a half months since right. until the election? <laughs> when it's ten and a half months until the election, whatever it is, it is, uh, uh, it, it's not today. If it were today, I think that would overwhelmingly we would win. It's not today. But we do have to make sure that we have truth. And I, we say to each other, this is about authenticity. Do the candidates go out, and they're not, they're not running against Donald Trump, they're, running, they're presenting themselves, what their hopes, dreams, what their purpose is for being um, a candidate, and why they would want to go to Congress, and what they know about the subject and judgment they have, and how they think strategically to, um, uh, to get the job done, and how that attracts people to them. So this is personal between the members and their dis uh, the candidates and their districts. It has nothing to do with somebody who's not from their area. And you're not a big fan of, as much as you have this reputation as a, a you know, ardent liberal, you're not a big fan of litmus tests, whether it's no. for, can for Democratic <clears throat> candidates, whether it's on issues like abortion, whether it's for getting people to declare whether they would vote for impeachment of President Trump. No. Um, are you concerned, though, you have all these potential 2020 presidential candidates out there, and they do seem to be sort of speaking up on these. Single payer is another issue yeah. that looks like it could be becoming a litmus test. Is that a problem for, is, is 2020 and where the party is on some of those issues a problem for some of your 2018 candidates? No, but I, I appreciate you, I mean, it's, it's um, certainly something that should be reviewed. But here's the thing. Our party is a democratic party. It, it has a lot of vitality, diversity, and the rest. And as I said earlier, it's not for us to go in and say, this is, you should be the candidate, and this is how you should. It's about what they can attract to what they're talking about. So my, I get credit for, you know, oh, you've kept the party so unified. I don't. I shouldn't deserve that credit. What unifies the House Democrats and the Senate, and we're uh, together on our better deal, better jobs, better pay, better future, is our unity about the economic security of America's working families. Whatever differences we may have on some of the other issues you mentioned or tactics that people may want to take, we are unified about that is our value system, about respecting uh, our responsibility to meet the needs of the American people, America's working families and to do so in a way that makes sure that people all participate in the prosperity and growth of our country. And also, I think my responsibility as a leader is to be unifying, but not just in my caucus, but in the country, and to be unif uh, transparent, have transparency and openness. How, let's do a tax bill, let's do an immigration bill, let's do an infrastructure bill, let's do it openly so people can see what the choices are. And then uh, also, again, uh, you know, issues like um, impeachment and the rest, uh, that will take its course, but it's not a unifying thing for the country to go down a path at this point, in my view. Uh, but 
overwhelmingly, I think the American, I mean, a lot of people in the public have a different view on that. And if I were out there, I might too, but I have a different responsibility here. Transparency, unity, bipartisanship. That's why we come here. We don't come here to be doing party work. We're, we come here to do, uh, honor the values of our country. And again, that is to try to, in the solutions you choose, when you have some options, to bring people together. So Jack on Twitter asks, if you get that gavel back next January, what's your top priority? Well, first of all, it's not about me getting the gavel back. I just want the Democrats to have the gavel back, and really the American people to have the gavel back, instead of the what motivates people to do a tax cut. Who, who motivated that, right? They shouldn't have this gavel. So it's not, it's not about me. Uh, but our, um, I think it, it, right away we would do something to, again, lift up the American people in terms of their financial stability and financial security. And part of that financial security is their access to quality, affordable health care as a right, not a privilege. Some of it is to have a fair uh, tax uh, agenda so that they can, again, uh, participate in creating growth, because you're not going to have growth in the economy unless you have comp consumer confidence across the board in the middle, great middle class and those who aspire to it. So it would be an agenda uh, that we are uh, uh, putting together in our better deal, better jobs. It's about a, a job initiative that, create, that creates growth, that generates good paying jobs, that increases the paycheck, that lowers the cost, lowers the cost of prescription drugs, lowers the cost of, of your communications each month, and the rest. So it would be about jobs, and it would be about growth. And we have time for one last question. And I want to ask you, what we are, one thing we are seeing this year is just extraordinary numbers of women stepping up to run for office. That's exciting. At every level. Um, I think there were, last I looked, something like 75 women whose names are in the mix running for governor. Women, when they run for office, have a different set of challenges than men do. So what would your advice be to women candidates as they step into this arena? Well, what my advice would be is what it has always been, because I've been, when I came to Congress, there were uh, 20, uh, 20, 12 Democrats, 23 women, 435 members in the House, 23 women. And I was determined right from that day that we would have it as a priority to elect more. We're now on the Democratic side up to 65. The Republicans, I think, are up to maybe 20. But we made a decision to do that. A third of our caucus is women. Half of our caucus are women, minorities, and LGBT. I'm very proud of that history. But here's the thing. And the best advice I got when I ran for office, and I say this to women all the time, be yourself. Know your power. Be who you are. You may see other people that you think, oh, I'd like to be that or that. Forget that. Authenticity is what matters. Who you are, your sincerity as to why. Share your purpose. What is your vision? Why are you running? What do you know? Know something about your subject. Know if it's about climate or if it's about education or if it's about uh, a woman's right to choose or health issues. Whatever it happens to be, the economy, know your subject. Show your vision. Know your subject so your judgment is respected. Think strategically. This is how I think I can get something done. And if you show your vision, your knowledge, and your plan, 
you will attract. You have to connect. And that's why I say, show them what is in your heart. And it's hard. This is not for the faint of heart. But women are so needed. And so I keep saying, when you're making the decision, weighing the equities, weigh how important it is that you make this decision to run. Because nothing is more wholesome for our political process, for our government, or actually for any aspect of our economic and social life than the increased participation and leadership of women. Deaf women, so. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's, that's all the time we have today. But that's a great note on which to end. Leader Pelosi, thank you so much for thank being you. with us today. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to hand things off to my colleague, Libby Casey, who is going to lead the next discussion. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.